I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What you are about to hear in the following episode does not implicate the Chicago police in the murder of Courtney Copeland. Previously on Somebody. And so when they said that he was combative... We were shocked with that information. We never got that report about him that he was combative. I know how he is, and I know he didn't do anything to pose a threat. I remember him specifically being handcuffed to the bed. And so we were like, okay, where's the police? We need these handcuffs off. My name is Shapiro Wells. This is the story of my son, Courtney, a young black man in a fancy car who wound up with a bullet in his back in front of a Chicago police station. It is the story of my search for the truth. This is Somebody. Everybody, somebody's every day. March 4, 2016, 1 hour, 16 minutes, and 53 seconds. 
Chicago emergency, Gary. <laughs> this is the last time you hear Courtney alive, just moments after he's been shot. It's difficult to understand, but I hear my baby saying, I've been shot. I've been shot. Chicago emergency, Gary. <laughs> I felt as a mom, like my baby, he, he's hurt. And I can't be there. When police gave me Courtney's phone back, I went straight to his recent calls. And there it was, 911. But it took a whole year between me learning that this call existed and hearing it for myself. Did my son dial 911? What do you mean? Did Courtney Copeland dial 911? What do you think? Absolutely. So why weren't you why didn't you inform me the first time we met? That was a recording of my conversation with police. They never told me that they had 911 call on Courtney. I wanted to hear the last moments of my son's life. I felt like as a mom, I deserved that. It had been over a year since they had contacted me about my son's death. I felt like my son had become a statistic, like he was basically put on the shelf the day after he died. And I was in a battle with the city to get them to release any and all videos that they had. I wanted somebody, anybody, to hear me. Okay, Facebook, I'm going to try this again. Like I was saying, you know, we are... The average black family trying to fight against a huge city. And everywhere we turn, we hear the doors getting slammed in our face. And I was like, God, just help me to get to where I need to be. I was reading through articles and I just happened to come across an article about Laquan Laquan McDonald was the biggest cover-up that the Chicago Police Department ever had in its existence, as far as I'm concerned. Laquan got shot 16 times, front and back, and he was running away from police. He was 17 years old. Sixteen shots in a cover-up. The police, the city tried to hide what happened to Laquan until a judge forced them to release that video. Now, the dash cam video shows Van Dyke shooting and killing 17-year-old Laquan McDonald in 2014. In the black community, none of us were surprised to see this. But the Laquan McDonald case got the whole country talking about race and the police. For months, the only explanation offered for why Laquan McDonald died on that street was that an officer had fired at him in self-defense. That's Rachel Maddow. And Laquan McDonald had been shot in the chest. That was the public story about this case. The only thing that interrupted that public trajectory is that some very aggressive journalism happened in Chicago. I heard about this reporter who blew open the case of Laquan McDonald. Uh, Mr. Calvin, thank you very much for your time tonight. I appreciate you being here. It's good to be with you. Um, You've been chasing the information on this case for so long. I decided I would reach out to that reporter, Jamie Calvin. So I sent an email. 
I didn't even know if anyone would actually read my note. But before I knew it, I had someone from his organization on the phone. So thank you for writing to us. No, I've, you know, been following uh, what you did with Laquan and uh, just trying to, to get someone to listen to me because I'm like, it just, it just doesn't add up. A few days later, I was sitting down with Jamie. I brought all my papers with me, my files. I mean, I had everything. I, I have such strong impressions of that day. So I do remember you're coming and coming and sitting right here at this table. Uh, your ability to find in that stack of paper without file folders with tabs, naming, to find whatever document you wanted to illustrate a point you were making, which I think I still think of as a kind of card shark, you know, uh, virtuosity. But the, when I walked him the through the case, I didn't know at the end of the conversation how it would go, so what he would say, but I felt that he was listening you, to me. I've had a lot of these conversations in the course of my career, none quite like this, because you laid out the uh, sequence of events as you understood it and identified the inconsistencies and anomalies and just suspect things in the police account. Jamie said that his journalism team will take the case. They call themselves the Invisible Institute. When I first went there, I was like, this really is invisible. Because <laughs> the way it's set back into a very secluded area, you'll never know it exists. Like a little detective agency type of feeling. <laughs> he actually referred me to his partner, Allison Flowers. Hey, good to see you. How are you? Are Allison you? is a journalist at the Invisible Institute. I saw you're busy this weekend moving your daughter into college, right? Yeah. First, I just wanted to check in and see how your mother's day was. <laughs> she's so sweet, but she's a hardball. She will get the answers for you. How long were you there? We were there for... And Allison, you're sitting next to me right now. Let's see, we've known each other now for almost three years. Yes. It's been a long road. Yes. And we've been in touch almost every single day. Yes. Okay, Allison, I'm back. Okay, hey, Chaparral. I'm here with Jamie and hey, Bill, Chaparral. by the way. Bill's Hi. with the Invisible Institute, too. Hi, Chaparral. Hey. Hi, everyone. So, first of all, Shapiro, how are you feeling after the revelations? I remember when I first met you, I think we were downstairs in the coffee shop, and you were, like, very meticulous. You were taking notes. You had your list of questions. You had, okay, hey, we're going to hit this. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. At this point, it, I was like, hey, I love her, you know? <laughs> I remember you being very measured, but I could also tell that you were in a lot of pain, but it was almost sort of secondary to your drive. When I first met you, you told me what you believed happened to Courtney, that he died after an encounter with police and that this seemed like a traffic stop gone wrong. And you had all this information that you'd compiled, the handcuffing, the fact that there was no blood in the car, and the fact that they weren't releasing the videos to you. And so you thought maybe Courtney was shot somewhere else. There were just a lot of unanswered questions at that time. So from here on out, Allison is going to join me in this investigation. So one of the first things we did was pull records for the police officers who were outside the station with Courtney. There were a lot of officers on the scene, but there were two main players, Officer Andrew Block and Sergeant Sean Ronan. When Courtney pulled up to the station, Officer Block was the first person he saw. Block said Courtney got out of his car and rushed over to him. He told him, 
I've been shot. And then he collapsed. This guy flagged down at Granite Central. A gentleman just said he was shot. Okay, we'll get EMS rolling to the 25th district. Okay. Oh. Yeah, send an ambulance right away. Block called an ambulance immediately, which is protocol. And when we dug into his history, we didn't see much. He's now a lieutenant. But then, there's Sergeant Sean Ronan. Guys, as soon as you can, try and pinpoint a location. We've got broken glass at Belden and Long. It might have happened over here, so we're just trying to figure it out. Ronan was the one running the show. And when we checked out his history on the force, we found some alarming stuff. And he got a whole bunch of complaints against him. 30 complaints that we've identified. More complaints than 89% of other Chicago police officers. Ronan's been disciplined twice. And that's pretty unusual, given that most of the time in Chicago, complaints are dismissed in favor of police officers. There are descriptions of him calling a black man a nigger, a motherfucker, and a stupid-ass gangbanger. And Ronan's been accused of false arrest, planting evidence, slamming a man's face into the concrete. And in one case, he and some other officers were accused of throwing a man out a window, tasing and beating him, and then refusing him medical care. That case was settled. Ronan stayed on the force. And then there's this, from 2017, the year after Courtney died. It's a video of Ronan shooting at a man during a traffic stop. Six times. Police put in reports that the man pointed a gun at them. He survived. Oh, my God. And Ronan was involved in another shooting. But for that one, he was given one of Chicago police's top awards, the Superintendent's Medal of Valor. I should note that most officers never fire their guns over their whole careers. So the fact that Ronan's done this at least twice, that's a big deal. When I was investigating Courtney's murder on my own, the city of Chicago didn't pay me any mind. But when the Invisible Institute came aboard, they changed their tune. The Invisible Institute sent in a ton of record requests, not just for the records of the officers on the scene, but for police videos and the recordings from the scanner. And this got the attention of the detectives, finally. Did he say why he was calling just out of the blue after 15 months? Here I am on the phone with one of the Invisible Institute's reporters, Sam. He said, I know that you guys have been filing for your request, and I said, it's your right to know. I told Sam that the detective asked me to come down to the station. Are you going to go? I'm trying to figure out if I should go. A few days later, I'm sitting down with those officers face-to-face. It's been more than a year since our first and only meeting, just after Courtney died, and I'm recording once again. When I first heard Chaparral's police recordings, I was disturbed by the way the officers spoke to her, a grieving mother. We want to make sure there's context to everything, so we're going to let large, unedited chunks of this tape play out. The first time I met police in that dingy old building, 
I played alone because I needed their help. The second time, I didn't come to play with them. I needed answers. I needed to know what happened to my son. that's part of your record. We sat across from each other from the conference table, whiteboard, vending machines, and fluorescent lights. I brought in my big case file, which had the paramedics report, that said my son had been handcuffed and claimed he was violent and combative. This disturbs me greatly because of the fact that my son was handcuffed. I'm like, okay, if he collapses, at what point? He wasn't. He was. He arrived at the hospital in uh, handcuffs. There was a police officer that also followed the ambulance. And this is what I'm upset because I'm like, how do you guys not know that my son was handcuffed? They kept questioning what I had uncovered. What, when was he handcuffed? If you're saying that he was handcuffed during well, training... we never said he was handcuffed, ma'am. Okay, well, it says... It's, it's well, I mean, that's, a, that's not a CPD document. Okay. That's a CFD document, okay? Okay, so... So you're denying that he... No, no, I didn't okay, say that. Well, no, him. don't put... Please, 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 don't put words in my mouth. I'm, I'm saying that that's... That's a, that's not a police department document. That's a that's First a Chicago fire department. Yeah, that's a Chicago fire department document. Between to review it and, and uh, absorb the contents. Okay. Again, it says handcuffs. Clearly, I I've, I've okay, never known no Chicago. Yeah. Okay, listen. No, it's obvious okay. what it says. Yeah. Well, I've never known. They handcuffed my baby as he was dying, and they acted like it was routine. Well, I read in the report, we can see why the handcuffs were necessary or restraints. Okay, we'll use I restraints. Said, whatever, what, no, however he was yeah. restrained, whether it was cuffs or foley's or whatever device. It says it specifically it, says cuffs. Okay. Who's who's telling you at the hospital that he was handcuffed? Oh, the nurses. Everybody told me. Who? No. Yeah, because we'll need to talk to who, who specifically. I gave them the ER nurse's name, Clarissa Hawkins. She's the one who told me that Courtney was handcuffed to the stretcher when he arrived at the hospital. They should have been with him in the ambulance. That's the policy. Again, if you put handcuffs on a patient, you would also then in turn put that information into your file that said that this person was handcuffed. I've never done that. Why not? Why would I? Why wouldn't you? Is he under arrest? Yeah. Who knows? You well, tell he, me. I, he was never under arrest. I don't know. But I'm telling you, your son. I, I don't know. Your son was. It's a lot of things that you told me that have not panned out. Such as what? In regards to his, uh, in, in regards to him, well, here, I have some. No, questions. no, no. You're you're saying a lot of things. Tell me well, one. I, I, I'm going to give you Tell me what one. I've been investigating in regards to this case. Okay, go ahead. Okay. I go felt ahead. angry. So, I felt like they were gaslighting me, like they were just sitting here lying in my face, even though the proof is right in front of me. So again, at one point in time, from him. And what collapsing. what does that does that have anything to do with uh, us solving who shot him? No, no, no I'm right. saying. What does that have any John, the, John? Does that have anything to do with uh, solving the crime? No, bottom line. So is, it's not probative evidence. This, no, why, why is so it? it's probative evidence. What they're saying is the fact that he was handcuffed had nothing to do with solving his murder. It's not probative evidence to solving the crime of who shot your son, ma'am. Okay. Which is okay? what we want to do. Okay. Which well, is our I end goal. Which is our end goal. Uh, my, okay. My, so this. So goal. what this. So okay. what this tells you. I'm. I'm more than calm. No, it doesn't so, sound like it. Well, I, you know what? I'm just kind of this way. Okay. Um, 
because I, you know, back and forth, back and forth. This could have gone on forever. I was mad as hell when they told me that they still had not even talked to the on-scene officers after a year of investigating my son's murder. They had their own reports, and they just assumed what was written was true. And they were growing tired of listening to me. That's basically what... So you're assuming that's what the officer meant. (sighs) These are all assumptions. These are not facts. Then they started talking very sarcastic to me, flipping through their reports, saying to each other, how many fouls you got there? It appears you put some work into it. I'm not denying that he didn't put any work into it. I'm just trying to make him more thorough. That's my right. That's my child. They kept trying to tell me how much work they put into the case. I spent a good amount of time driving around that neighborhood looking for video and trying to find video evidence. But they missed up. I know they did. Because I was talking to people that they had never talked to. And if I could have talked to the on-scene officers myself, I would have. 100% certainty that this is not a possibility. So what you're telling me is this. You believe that the police targeted your son and shot and killed him in, in front of the police station? No. I believe that not enough has been done to solve Courtney's murder. What would really? you like What would you like done that I haven't done? I, 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 I personally would have went back and re-interviewed everybody to make sure that... Re-interviewed the police? Oh, absolutely. They assume police officers tell the truth, but I don't. No. Sergeant Mitchell? Yes, ma'am. Based on the history that... No, 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 no. Don't even, uh, no. Don't even okay. start. No, 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 no. Why don't what you I'm talk saying, to me? What I'm saying to you is that this problem didn't just occur with Courtney Copeland's case. The breakdown from the community and the you police know, I'm not did here not to just talk happen. politics with you, I'm, man. I'm, I'm just, here to I'm talk. Just telling I'm here you, to talk reality. You want, I'm, I'm, I am no. talking reality. No, I'm here to talk reality until about this you case. begin to no. be, you until what? you I'm begin done. to uh, to, to, uh, to no. build. No. 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 These no. white no. men no. were having none of my experience as a black woman in Chicago. Your department has not saying this particular. I'm just saying CPD in general has a history that has been tainted. And I know it's unfair. Absolutely. Especially to these two gentlemen in this room. Absolutely it is. I'm saying I know it's unfair. But that is just Then then why bring it up? Because it's the reality that we know. It's not with these two guys. Because I know him personally and I've worked with him. I'm not saying that they did anything to to my son. I take offense to that. Why? I really do. Because you're painting with a broad brush, ma'am. It's not a broad brush when it's everyday reality for black and brown people in Chicago. You're painting these guys with a broad brush. Do you understand? I'm sorry. Okay, do you? Okay, fine. fine. Sergeant Mitchell. I'm not, you know what, ma'am? Do you understand that that's a reality with black and brown people in Chicago or not? And I'm telling you, not with us. I wanted them to understand that this wasn't only my perspective. And if I haven't been clear on this, I apologize. Our goal, our stated goal here is to find, arrest, and charge, and convict the offenders who did this to God your son. Willing. That's our stated goal, okay? No variance, no nothing. No politics, no bullshit, no nothing. 
And okay. I'll tell you something else. Regardless of what you may think of me because I'm white, I mean, it doesn't. I, I don't it does, no, 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 but I, 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 I want you to think that. I really don't care because I've been a policeman long enough where there's some people that just. This is what they have a problem with. I want to let you know, number one, I don't have a problem with it. If that's the way you feel, that's the way you feel about me. It's, that's fine. No, I just want to know. But I just, I I just want to let I you know. I want everybody I want, no, 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 to, no, no, to no, focus no. on this case. But I want to let you know. It still is you, you, well, you could spit on the floor when you see me. It's still not going to affect me from, from, from working I'm on it. I'm doing your job. And, and oh, if okay. you, if, whether we never talk again or, or we become good, it doesn't matter one way or another to me. If, if something good comes that I, I'm able to to pick up and run with, I'm gonna I'm gonna run with it with, with your son's murder. And whether you you thank me or tell me to get fucked at the end of all of this, it doesn't matter. It doesn't well, matter. No, I'm definitely gonna thank you because that's my goal. Yeah. Well, I want to know why my 22 well, year old son was murdered. Well, so do I. Yeah. So yeah. do I. But no apparent reason. So do I. But it, it, as far as this whole black, brown, green shit, no, it doesn't I'm matter. Saying, to me. I so. said you can't discount the history of what no. happened. It was time to go. But before I left, there was one more thing they wanted to be sure to say to me. This also bothered me from our conversation the other day. The fact that you're recording me without my knowledge or consent. If you if you ask me something, I'll answer you. As truthful as I, I know. But do not be surreptitiously recording me. Okay. Is all I'll tell you. It's a crime. It's it's a crime. It's actually not illegal. And I'm sure your attorney would tell you the same thing. Just like I can't turn this on and record you. So I'm okay with being recorded. Well, no, no, I know, but I have to let you know, and I'm not okay being recorded. So just so you know. I don't have nothing to have, so. Well, I, neither do I, but you're still, you do not have my consent to record me. It's illegal. So... Just so you know, because I know you've been recording me every conversation. You're recording me from the first uh, first day we met. Why you say that? Because do I have a reason to record you? I don't well, know. You, you obviously evidently did. you think you do because you, your your whole fo- focus on this thing is is something the police did wrong. No, my whole I just wanted to know what happened to my son. My whole focus is and to me, nothing was off the table. So what you're saying is he was calling nine one one. While he was on the phone, uh, while the police were there, yeah. and then the police killed him. I don't know if the police okay. killed him. I don't know. I don't know. Ma'am, good luck with your good I, luck I with know. your parallel investigation. I don't know. Good luck with it. Is all I, I'll tell I don't you. know. Good luck. Because if, if you get that, any answers that I don't have, what I'm saying let is that I am open to all scenarios. So am I. By this cool? time, so the supervising right sergeant had already walked out the room. Let's hit it. <laughs> I needed to find someone who would tell me the truth. Someone who was right there outside the police station. I got the name of one of the EMTs who cared for Courtney at the scene, Daniel Cortez. Allison and I decided to knock on his front door. They probably think it's somebody electioneering. Right as we were leaving, he opened the door. I had a mic clipped to my jacket, so that's why it sounds a little fuzzy. Oh, hi. 
Hi, are you Mr. Cortez? Yes. Hi, my name is Shapiro Wells, and you were one of the EMTs that actually uh, worked on my son the night that he had passed away. And right now, I'm actually uh, chronic chronicling this journey in a documentary, and I am recording right now. And I was wondering if you had a few moments if I can talk to you about... Your son that passed away? Yes. Can I show you his picture? And it was on the, um, on Grand and Central. I had Courtney's flyer with me, the same one I had put up all over the neighborhood, and the picture of the BMW. And we were actually trying to get some information about his final moments. I'm sorry, ma'am, but I don't recall uh, much about it. I've been on the job for many years, and it's a lot of runs. I'm sorry. Okay. Do you remember anything at all? Not that I can recall. He was a right black now. guy in a BMW well, shot in the back. We asked if he remembered yeah, Courtney being like handcuffed. He says he didn't recall. I don't recall. Okay. Sorry. Do you see a lot of gunshot victims handcuffed? I can't answer that right now. I don't know. I'm not sure. So. Okay. Because what she's concerned about are two things. One, she really wants to know just his final moments, which it right. sounds like you just don't remember. Nope. Okay. And the other thing is it's very concerning to her that he was handcuffed, and this was before he was in the ambulance. Okay. And so, so I'm not, I, but I don't you don't know, remember. I'm not, I'm not a police officer. Okay. I'm a paramedic. Okay. So whatever their procedures are, I don't know, but I know what we do. Paramedics mm-hmm. don't handcuff people. Okay. Do you remember that? Cuffs? That's for the police. So you wouldn't have requested the handcuffs on a patient? Um, unless they're being physically violent towards me. But you unless don't remember that? Unless someone's physically being violent towards me, then I would have them arrested, because hitting me is like hitting a cop. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Do you remember that? I don't know. I don't recall that. I don't remember any of that. So. Do you but remember you, this case at all? I be- Not much. Yeah. I've already explained that. Yeah. So you can stop questioning. Oh, I'm okay. sorry. I don't okay. mean to be aggressive. I just want right. to make no, sure I understand. No, but I've already given you. you an answer, so that's an answer, right? Okay, I understand. Like yes or no is an answer? Okay, okay. sure. I'm sorry for your loss, man. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank I, you for I your time. I apologize for, for not being better help, but, you know, again, I'm sorry for your loss. I hope you're at peace. Thank you so much. Okay. All right, have a good day. Thank God you, bless. Mr. Quartet. Let me get this straight. He didn't remember. He didn't remember my son, who was right in front of the 25th District Police Station. I mean, like, how often does this happen? Right, and there was one thing he specifically did not remember, though. Yeah, he didn't remember Courtney being combative. He did not say that Courtney was fighting, he was violent. But this is the narrative that they wrote in their reports. I mean... This whole case, for me, is about uncovering the truth, but it's also about clearing Courtney's name. After the Invisible Institute stepped in, all of a sudden, the city had no problems releasing the videos from the night Courtney died. They also released the police radio from that night. 552 Robert. 552 Robert. The victim is a male. His name is Courtney Copeland. Give me a date of birth of... uh, It's hard to understand, but if you listen closely, the officer says, he gave me a date of birth. Then he pauses. He gave me a date of birth. Give me a date of birth of... uh, 
The detectives at the hospital told me Courtney didn't say anything after he collapsed. But Courtney was talking to them and giving them information. Finally, almost 500 days after my son died, the city sent me a bunch of DVDs in the mail. I truly felt so sick about it because of what I was about to see. I braced myself, and I popped the first one in the player in the bedroom. The disc wouldn't even play because the city sent them in this crazy format, G64, which I've never even heard of. This was going to be the first time I was going to see the final moments of my son. And then for those videos not to play, and they knew that I wouldn't be able to open this format, it's like they were trying to make it impossible for me to find out the truth. But about a week later, the folks from the Invisible Institute were able to convert the footage, and they brought it over to my house. Hey. Hi. Come on in. Thanks. Thank you for coming. So Rajiv, our technical wizard. Oh, thank you guys so much. <laughs> so, did you watch it? I have not. Rajiv, you know, you necessarily watched it. Watch it. So what do you think of it? Uh, I don't know what you watch it. Oh, Lord. Um, but we sat at the dining room table. It was me, my mom, Brent, Courtney's little sisters, and my Aunt Kim. The videos came from four different cameras. The main one was in front of the police station. There were also other camera angles from around the block. Remember, it's in the middle of the night. The video is kind of grainy and pretty bad. I, right I think here. I can get you the... This is the police station Oh, right good, here. you can see it. Yeah, the address is in the following, too. We see the BMW outside the police station. The car is still running. We can see the smoke coming from the exhaust pipe. There are two police cars behind the BMW. Then another one shows up with its lights on. It looks like Courtney's car has been pulled over. But Courtney himself is nowhere in sight. Right then, the camera swings away. But I mean, why would you move the camera here? You know it's something going on over there. I mean, you can see the lights bouncing off, right? You know there are cars, yes. right? Yeah, look at them. And you can see them increase as a few more cars come in. We don't even know what's going on. We still can't see where Courtney is or what the police are doing. Finally, a few minutes later, the camera comes back to the scene. But still no Courtney. It looks like his jacket that's there. It was freezing that night. I know Courtney was wearing his peacoat when he was shot. There's a bullet hole in the back. But here it is, crumbled up on the ground. Well, where is he? A police officer is looking through the back window of the BMW with the flashlight. And then the camera pans, and we see Courtney for the first time. Courtney is laying on the ground on his elbows, and he's shifting his weight. He was wearing a red Nike sweater. It was his favorite sweater. Courtney is surrounded by officers. Yeah, see right here? Mm -hmm. This is what the tow truck driver saw. See, Courtney is there on the ground. Look look at that camera. Wait a minute, look. My son is on his hands and knees. 
He's reaching up for somebody to help him. On the police radio, this is when they call for more officers to the scene. Courtney is definitely not combative. He's not violent or a danger to others. No, the EMTs are there now, right? No. Now there's an ambulance on the scene. There's an unmarked car blocking part of the camera's view of Courtney. Somebody, either a paramedic or a cop, is pulling him up like fast and forcefully from the ground. It looks like there could be a stretcher right there. The video is really blurry here. You can't really see what's going on. But according to the paramedics report, this is the moment that Courtney was handcuffed. So th- this may be where they're handcuffing him. This has to be. This is what they're doing to him. This is what they're doing to him. Handcuffing him. They ha- oh my and God. appear to be a combative. Right. He's he trying to... Just get to his feet. Try yeah. Yeah. So isn't that what they're doing right now? Look at <laughs> Then Courtney was gone. Maybe he's in the ambulance. All we know is that we don't see him again. My whole family, we were all at the dining room table, just holding on to each other. We went back through the footage of Courtney's driving en route to his girlfriend's house before he got shot. Jamie pointed out that Courtney's BMW was being followed by two police cars, one marked and one unmarked. And then these three cars, they disappear off the screen. And when we see Courtney next, he's on the ground, reaching up for help, and he's surrounded by police. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. 
I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.
When the Invisible Institute came to my house with those police videos, and we saw Courtney on his knees, shot and begging for help, I saw for myself what I already felt in my bones. I'm shot, I'm shot, I'm shot. The tabs have said. Here's what we saw. Two police cars following Courtney's BMW. They're all there, driving down the street. The next time we see my son, he's on the ground in front of the police station. What happened during those moments we couldn't see between him driving his car down the street and ending up with a bullet in his back. Everything was telling me that the police shot my son. I sat with this for a few days. I was by myself. My husband, Brent, was out of town. He drives a truck, so he was on his job. But then, Jamie from the Invisible Institute came back to my door. He re-examined those videos, and he had new information Information that changed everything. The idea that the police were implicated seems much less likely now. Okay. Okay? Um, Which, as I say, I'm speaking for myself, is something of a relief. I mean, we don't want that to be true. (laughs) Even though it would be a big story, but fundamentally we don't want it to be true. After he left, I called Brent and explained everything. Hello? Hey, can you talk? He was out on the road, driving through the rain. The first car that we thought were the police, that was not Courtney's vehicle in in the lead. Okay. And they found some new evidence that said that it may have happened the way Uh, the police stated. They looked at the car more closely. The shape of the trunk, the headlights and the windows. It did not match the structure of a BMW. It turns out it was never Courtney's BMW. We were looking at the wrong car. And there is a video showing Courtney's actual car. And you can see him going down a side street, not being followed by anyone speeding toward the police station. One thing that Jamie said before he left the first time is that he told me, now we have to go investigate our investigation. And I'm glad he did. Because I wouldn't want to implicate wrongly anyone for this murder. So now it seems that police never followed Courtney's car after all. That it may have happened like the police told us. Courtney was shot and then drove himself to the police for help. Uh, You know, they still, you know, feel that, you know, he was treated kind of badly. But they don't necessarily believe at this time they they actually did the shooting. How are you doing? I mean, it's, it's hard to swallow. You know, it's hard to swallow, you know. um, I mean, because Sunday I was feeling, okay, 
maybe they actually did do it, but now I'm like, okay, maybe they didn't. We're pretty much back in square one where we probably, they still never find who the killer is. Right. It's still raining back Mm -hmm. home. Yep. Yeah, it was just stormy. Because it's, it's like a typhoon now here. Okay, babe, I'm, uh, I just need to process all of this. I'll be there for you as soon as I can. All right, love. All right. Bye. Bye. When I thought police killed Courtney, it made me feel like his death served some type of higher purpose, like Emmett Till or Laquan McDonald. Their killing actually woke up the country. With Emmett Till, when people saw how he was murdered, they were shocked to see such brutality. And the same with Laquan McDonald. With Courtney dying, If the police did it, it would have been a major cover-up, and it would have shook Chicago to the core. But if cops didn't kill him, then his death was just another unsolved Chicago murder. I went from knowing who killed my son to knowing nothing. I talked with the Invisible Institute folks, and Allison, you and Jamie told me that you stay on the case, and we start this all again. But the way police treated Courtney still wasn't okay, and it wasn't just. We needed to reckon with this, and we needed to find out who really did kill Courtney. So that's where we're headed next. But first, we needed to better understand how we got this wrong. So I sat down with Jamie to talk about it. So I think we were, in retrospect, predisposed to find that the police were implicated in the murder. At the Invisible Institute, our goal is to hold public institutions accountable. And we see a lot of cases involving police abuse. In the past decade, the city of Chicago has paid out more than a half a billion dollars in police misconduct lawsuits. All of this is true. And it influenced the way we saw those videos. Now we had to walk back our assumptions and start over again. The metaphor of of walking back an assumption feels exactly right. You're really trying to to reorient and and reboot the, the really the entire investigation. Allison, what's been your experience with the police? My perspective on the police has changed over time. When I was a kid, I thought, like a lot of white people do, that the police existed just to keep everybody safe. One time, I was in my 20s, and I thought someone was breaking into my apartment. So I rushed into my closet, and I called 911, and when the police came, they just told me it was a raccoon. Officer Friendly. Then later, as a reporter, I've called on the police to help me with stories, and I've also had to call out the police and report on their abuses of power. 
Now I'm married, and my husband is black. And he's been pulled over by police, searched by dogs, twice. The last time this happened, he was actually on his way back from a job interview and wearing a suit. We have a three-year-old son, and he was actually just a few months old when I met you, Chaparral. So your story about losing your son just hit me right in the gut. I remember... um having the conversation with my son about how to interact with police. Make sure you don't reach for anything, Courtney. Be very calm. Be very polite and courteous. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. You have to have these conversations. It's like, it's different for white people in America and black people in America. It has always been different. And There has always been a sense of, uh, I believe, comfort for white people and a sense of fear for black people when it comes to police. Right. I wasn't raised to fear the police. And we were. For me and Brent, our fear goes way, way back. Both our grandparents, they grew up in the South. Yeah. You know, my grandmother was born in 1930. Yeah, my grandfather's uh, 1927 in uh, Arkansas. they saw a lot. And my grandmother actually had to flee from the South. As did mine. Because of all the hangings and the lynching and everything like that. My grandmother used to always call him the man. You know, we had to flee from the man. We had to leave because of the man. She said that, you know, she only experienced some type of freedom when she came to Chicago. I'm just glad that she didn't see what happened to Courtney because I don't think that she would be able to have survived it. Yeah. Sometimes I just sit here and I just think, like, I'm still in a daze. There was a, a rhyme that came to mind that I heard back in high school, like senior year, because it was talking about police and police brutality. And it said, you were put here to protect us, but who protects us from you? I remember when Courtney was about six months old. It was the summer of 1994, and we were staying with my grandmother in the Inglewood area. One day, we were all sitting on the porch, just me and my cousins, my uncles, and then all of a sudden, gangbangers just started shooting out of nowhere. And I remember my uncle grabbing Courtney out of my hands and rushing us up in the house upstairs so that we can be safe. I remember telling myself, I cannot lose my son to these streets. That day... I said, I'm moving. I lived out of my car for about two weeks until I was able to secure an apartment. I was like, my son is going to have a chance of surviving. And that was my goal was just to keep him safe, to keep him out of harm's way so that he can grow up and, and enjoy his life without worrying about being shot and killed in Chicago. C-O-P-E-L-A-N-D, first name, Courtney. Um, can I have the date of passing? Uh, 3 4 16. 
I'd been dreading it, but I went back to the place where they did Courtney's autopsy, the medical examiner's office. And how are you related? The mom. The last time I was there, I identified my son's body on a metal slab. Okay. That's the doctor that did the examination. Okay. That's the case number. Okay. And then this is the doctor's assistant. She'll be able to speak with you and maybe set up something where you guys can speak about it okay. and clarify everything. I was there because my son's case was coming down to two questions. One, who killed Courtney? I promise you we're going to dig into that soon. And two, did police do everything they could to help him? I needed to know if my son could have survived this injury. There's a note in the hospital records that Courtney's aorta got hit. That's the main artery in the body. But the autopsy report says nothing about the aorta getting hit. In fact, it says it was intact. So I just left the ME's office. I want to know, but... I don't want to know. So anyway, I'm going to give them a call and see what they say. Hopefully, they could answer these pressing questions. The aorta getting hit means he would have bled out within minutes. And this all mattered because there were delays in Courtney's case. Yes, I felt that they took too long to get him to the hospital. From the time that he was on the scene in front of the police station until the time that they drove off in the ambulance, it was about 13 minutes. Every part of me wants to believe that my son could have survived. Every part of me. Every part of me wants to believe that I I had time to get to him. Every part of me wants to believe that. So, Chaparral, you were waiting to get answers from the medical examiner. And we'd already tried to talk to Courtney's surgeon, but the hospital wouldn't let her speak to us. So in the meantime, we turned to other medical experts to look at the case. From the coroner's report, it appeared that the bullet went through his lung, and then it was lodged somewhere in the muscles of his left neck. Grace Chang is a trauma surgeon at Mount Sinai, a hospital on Chicago's west side. We actually talked to three trauma surgeons, but Dr. Chang was the only one who'd go on the record. And right away, she told us something that helped us understand why there was no blood in Courtney's car. Because he wasn't just bleeding out, he was bleeding in. You could say his his chest cavity was filling with blood. Yeah. Okay. That's a pretty large receptacle. It can... Hold a lot, yeah. hold several liters of blood, essentially. Dr. Chang if described the emergency surgery when doctors opened up Courtney's chest. chest. You go in there, you resuscitate their heart, and you can also fix and stop the bleeding. So that's why you do that. She also noticed the discrepancy between the surgeon's report and the autopsy report about the aorta. Had it gone through the aorta, typically that's not a survivable injury either. So that's why I marched my butt down to the medical examiner's office for answers. Was Courtney's aorta hit or not? Did he have a chance or not? And the next day, they called me back. Alice and I hopped right on the phone right after. She said well, her findings, when she did the autopsy, uh, they did, she didn't find any damage to the aorta. 
So that's why she didn't include it in her in her autopsy. And she was like, you know, you know, he did bleed out. Um, uh, she said you could tell that by the amount of blood that was in his chest. She had actually reviewed his file again, and she said that his aorta was intact. It still brings me back to had they taken him to the hospital right away. Because he's begging them, like, help me, help me. Don't stand around looking at me. Help me, get me to the hospital. For the life of me, for the life of me, Allison, I can't say that that he would have survived. I can't say 100%. I just wanted them to give him a chance. They didn't give him a chance. Courtney's heart stopped in the ambulance four minutes before he arrived at the hospital. If he had got there just a few minutes earlier, maybe he could have been saved. So every delay mattered. We kept coming back to the fact that Courtney was handcuffed. Reports say it was because he was combative. And by the way, it's not uncommon for trauma patients to present as combative, especially when they're losing lung function. But handcuffs aren't used when trauma patients are combative. A spokesperson for the Chicago Fire Department told me their paramedics don't use handcuffs, they don't have handcuffs, and they don't restrain people with handcuffs. We exchanged dozens of emails. But then, when we asked the spokesperson about Courtney's case specifically, that's when their story changed. He told me they requested cuffs because Courtney was flailing in the street before paramedics arrived. But that's just not what the video shows. It doesn't make sense. Well, we know at this point that they had his plates and they had his name, and they knew that the car wasn't registered to him. Yeah. And they were treating him as a suspect more than a victim. That's just the bottom line. You can see him reaching up, begging them for help. You see this on this tape. And the fact that they're saying that their only resolution was to handcuff him, I just know that they wouldn't have done this to somebody who was white. video. It's about roughly 19 minutes into the video, but um, okay. He's the guy in the red hoodie. I mean, looking at this segment of the video, it looks as if he's lying there mostly immobile as police are kind of standing up around him. Stephen Russian is a professor at Loyola Law School. He specializes in police reform. We wanted his take on the police's treatment of Courtney. So we watched the footage together of Courtney outside the police station, and there's a crowd of officers just milling around. And it does not look to me as though he's receiving any medical treatment. No, it looks like he's being treated like a suspect. Because I think one thing we haven't yet talked about is the number of officers around him, all of which is relevant if you're going to say he's a threat, if he's a risk to other people. Uh, threat to the officers, you have one, two, three, uh, four officers, it looks like. And yeah, if you hadn't, if you hadn't put this in context for me, it looks like they are handcuffing a suspect to bring him in for an arrest. There were at least 11 police officers on the scene. I asked Russian about another fact. There were no police on board the ambulance to unlock the handcuffs. 
Courtney's ER nurse, Clarissa Hawkins, told us they couldn't get to work on Courtney right away because they had to wait for the police to arrive. Um, if they're arresting someone suffering a you know, life-threatening wound and that person has to go to the hospital and they're in cuffs, do you know whether the police have to accompany in the ambulance, follow? Because I think they would need to be there to, like, unhandcuff it, right? So, so it's not. But in this case, they weren't in the ambulance. Yeah, as a lawyer, that starts sounding like a civil liability issue there immediately, right? What Russian is saying is this. By handcuffing Courtney and not going with him in the ambulance, police officers may have stood in the way of Courtney's life-saving treatment. There's another delay that also bothered me. Courtney was shot on the northwest side of Chicago, but got transported all the way east to Illinois Masonic Hospital in the Lakeview neighborhood. Paramedics in Illinois are supposed to take the gunshot victims to the closest trauma center that can take them. The closest trauma center was not Illinois Masonic. But maybe it was the fastest one to get there that night. Nope. We checked that out, too. So we found out that there were actually two other trauma centers that were closer and faster to get to, Strozier and Mount Sinai. Not dramatically closer, but when we're talking about life or death, minutes really do matter. It could have saved him another five to ten minutes on the road. We looked at all different routes, times of day, and traffic patterns. And why these four or five or even ten minutes matters is because my son's heart stopped four minutes before getting to the hospital. Every day, I can't help thinking about the difference those few minutes could have made. I mean, what do you do with this information? None of this makes sense to me. I swear to God, none of it makes sense. It just hurts my heart. It hurts my heart, I tell you. I'm sorry. I think Courtney is, you know, I don't want to say he's lucky because what happened to him was so unlucky. But, you know, if you're going to have any mom in the world to get answers for you, you want it to be Shapiro Wells. Police never found any physical evidence in the car, just some broken glass on the street. The state crime lab analyzed the bullet fragment lodged into Courtney's neck and the bullet jacket, but it just wasn't enough to identify a gun. But we knew a neighbor heard two shots. So where's the other bullet? I'm I'm just surprised that there wasn't anything uh, recovered from the autopsy. Um... Or, or in the car. It's just, it's just kind of amazing that there was nothing. We talked to this firearms forensic expert, David Brundage. He said he was surprised police didn't find anything when they processed the car. The police searched the car on scene. Brundage said they should have also searched the car under better lighting, like in an open garage. I'm going to pull it right now. So actually, let me get my evidence bag ready. Okay. Brundage told us that sometimes... Bullets can hide in the seams of car seats. They just leave tiny slits. And until you remove the seat and search, you'll never know. It could actually lead us to the murder weapon. 
He said the second bullet might still be in the car and gave us instructions on how to search for it. So we found a BMW certified mechanic at a little auto shop in the suburbs. He agreed to help us take the car apart. What we're going to do is actually unbolt the seat from its frame, and then we're going to take the entire seat uh, up and take it out of the vehicle. Okay. And then where are you going to put it? Because uh, we need to examine what the seat. Kind of all around. We took out the front okay. seat. Yeah, maybe. After all this time, we saw some broken glass. Okay. All right, Shapurl, you want to go ahead and grab that glass? How many pieces is that? One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. So, if we don't find anything here, where's the bullet? We kept searching, but we didn't find a bullet. We did find some debris that looked like it could be something, so we put it in evidence bags. We sent them back to the firearms forensic expert, and we waited. When we got the news, we were disappointed. Uh, I'm guessing you have some sort of news to report. Yes, I've, uh, well, this is not very, uh, very informative, but I finished uh, looking at the uh, physical items that you uh, shipped to me. I did find one kernel of gunpowder. Oh, something wow. Called, okay. uh, yeah, one, one particle of gunpowder. He told us that when he looked at it under a microscope, all he could see was that the gunpowder was likely from the Winchester Olin Corporation, which sells to a number of ammunition companies. It could have been used in almost any type of gun. Well, at least we looked. Because our investigation was going to be thorough. Now that we were rebooting the investigation, we all returned to the street where we believe Courtney was shot, the spot where his friends first collected broken glass and saw skid marks, and where a neighbor said she heard shots fired. Courtney was shot on Chicago's northwest side. It's a neighborhood called Belmont Cragen. I went out there right after Courtney died, putting up posters, knocking on doors, begging somebody to tell me something. We knew that you'd already covered this ground, but now we wanted to hit every single house between there and the police station. We needed to find witnesses. Chaparral's going to lead the way, um, but how many cars do you, how many spots do you have? I got three. I got the uh, seats down, but I got three spots. Okay. Um, we I set out with a crew, Bill. a group of journalism students, of course you, Chaparral, me, and our producer, Bill. So, Shapurl, we're in your van, the same one that you used to haul Courtney and his buddies to basketball games as they were growing up. And I noticed a strawberry air freshener dangling from your rearview mirror and this necklace that belonged to Courtney. The necklace was a medallion that he had earned from World Ventures. It reminds me of him and it makes me feel close to him. So, the first thing, you wanted to show us the police cameras near the station. But I knew that that camera, that's the camera that rotates. Do you see all these cameras? Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. It's like quadrillion cameras right here. And you tell me that you don't have any cameras. You don't have we drove over to the intersection of Grand and Central, the police station where Courtney collapsed on the ground. We put on our blinkers and we got out. Uh, it looks like they still have his photo up. Let me check. 
Bill and I are at the light pole on the corner and there was a flyer with Courtney's face on it. It was one of the reward posters I had put up more than a year before. Bill and I stood on the side of the street right outside the police station. Yeah, his photo is still there. They, they were tearing them all down, but I'm glad to see that this one is still up. That's him. It's been almost two years. See, everything right now is a mystery. Everything. Because it's not just about police killing black people, but it's also about them allowing them to die. To him, he was nothing but a nigga on the street who got shot. I feel that sometimes, you know, when you go through these situations, the dead can no longer speak. So you have to do it for them. Right in the middle of all of this, a cop pulls up behind us. He asks Bill if we got into an accident. No, we're good. You know, is there uh, a reason why you guys are blocking traffic? In yeah, the you Grand know, Avenue. Right, her son died right here. I. Right, and I, so we're. Uh, I feel bad for that, but yeah. I mean, you guys could have parked over here. This way, you're not putting yourself in danger. Move out the way. Don't block traffic. We called it a day. Nice, bro. Somebody is a co-production of the Invisible Institute, The Intercept, Topic Studios, and iHeartRadio in association with Tenderfoot TV. I'm Shapiro Wells. This podcast is produced by Allison Flowers and Bill Healy. Sarah Geis is our story editor. Ellen Glover is our associate producer. For the Invisible Institute, Jamie Calvin is executive producer. For Topic Studios, Maria Zuckerman, Christy Gressman, and Letal Malad are executive producers. Special thanks to Lizzie Jacobs. For The Intercept, Roger Hodge, deputy editor, is supervising producer. Sound design by Carl Scott and Bart Warshaw. Michael Rayfield is our mix engineer. Our theme song, Everybody's Something, is by Chance the Rapper. Original music for the podcast by Nate Fox of The Social Experiment and Eric Butler. Additional reporting by Sam Stecklow, Annie Wynn, Kahari Blackburn, Rajiv Sinclair, Henry Adams, Matilda Voyat, Dana Brozos Kelleher, Francis McDonald, Diana Akmajian, Maddie Anderson, Andrew Fan, and Erissa Apentaku. Translation support by Benny Hernandez Ocampo and Emma Perez. Fact checking by Noel Argeni. Special thanks to Chris Rasmussen, Bennett Epstein, Matt Topic, David Braylo, and Julie Wolf. We want to hear from you. Email us at info at somebodypodcast.com or leave us a voicemail at 773-270-0121. To learn more about this case and for links to additional materials, go to our show page 
at somebodypodcast.com. You can also find a list of everyone we want to thank there. So many people helped us along the way. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.